This season of On the Contrary is supported by Edelgift Foundation, an organization that works to support the growth of small to mid-sized non-profits working at the grassroots in India. Edelgift's mission is to transform communities by enabling leaders, organizations, and the ecosystem of philanthropy as a whole. Over the last decade, the institution has invested billions of rupees in the Indian development sector and has been leading collaborative action towards building an independent, resilient civil society. I often think of cities as communities. And we as Indians have outsourced management of our communities to great bureaucrats and sometimes great and sometimes lazy politicians. And I think what the pandemic has taught us is the community matters and the community makes a difference. What I realize is that in all these conversations, in development investment, in the SDG goals, in the climate change space. Although cities are the geography on which more people live today, there is very little discussion about cities in general on climate change and development investment because it's assumed that all that will be taken care of by the private sector. Hi, I'm Shreya Adhikari, and you're listening to On the Contrary by India Development Review, or IDR, a show featuring unlikely conversations on topics that affect our future. On this podcast, hear differing perspectives from leaders and experts as they help us make sense of the most pressing issues of our time. Your host for the show is Arun Myra, a thought leader who has the unusual combination of having worked in the private sector, the social sector, as well as the government, where he was a member of India's Planning Commission. Here's your host, Arun Myra. According to economists, the majority of the world's population must live in cities because cities are engines of economic growth. We are told that in the future, it's cities that will provide more income-earning opportunities for India's growing population and not rural India. But today, most Indian cities have miserable living conditions with inadequate housing, poor sanitation and water services, and poor public health and education. If we expect our cities to adequately serve their residents, they need much better infrastructure. The COVID pandemic and the migrant crisis last year made this abundantly clear. So many people lost their livelihoods, had no income security, and were forced to return to their villages. So when we talk about better infrastructure, what do we mean? What sort of infrastructure do India cities really need? Who takes the decisions about what infrastructure gets prioritized? And how are these decisions taken? Most importantly, who should benefit the most from the growth of a city? financial investors, or all of the city's residents. I'm hoping we get to discuss all of this and more today with Sheila Patel and Irina Wittel, both of whom have a great deal of experience on this topic. Sheila is widely recognized nationally and internationally for her expertise in issues of urban poverty, housing, and infrastructure. Sheila is the director of Spark, an Indian nonprofit that works with the urban poor so they can get access to secure housing and basic amenities. And she's the current chair of the board of Slum Dwellers International and global network of grassroots organizations of the urban poor. 
Sheila's experience and expertise is unique because it's both at a grassroots level as well as the level of national and global policy. Irina is one of India's most respected independent consultants and advisors on emerging markets, agriculture and urban development. She currently sits on the boards of some of India's largest companies, including Godrej Industries and Wipro. Previously, she was a partner at McKinsey and Company for more than 15 years, where she was a founding member of the Global Developments and Emerging Markets practice. Sheila Arena, it's so great to have you both here together. So I'm going to ask you first, Irina, if you had to evaluate the most livable city in the world, and this could be any city, what five or six indicators would you consider? I think um, I would put the following six. The first is jobs. A city finally is, is investment meeting talent to create economic and social outcomes. So jobs, number of jobs, quality of jobs. Second is inclusion, uh, a city which has place for both sides of Gurgaon, divided by the highway, for Dharavi and South Bombay, because Bombay couldn't survive without Dharavi for more than a couple of days. And we need inclusion not as a cool thing to talk about in non-profit conferences, but as a recognition that the most valuable contribution to society comes from some of our most ill-paid people whether they are sweepers or cleaners or biomedical waste collectors or pewns or delivery boys. And they don't live in South Bombay. Most of them live in Dharavi and Dharavi's equivalent. So inclusion. Third is uh, safety and amity. If you're a person in India, woman or man, you value safety. And amity because unfortunately the whole world seems to be going through some kind of a manthan. And we can't take the social amity of the last 10, 20 years as a given. And the fourth one would be provision of basic services, whether it's water, whether it's schools, whether it's ICU rooms, maybe now even oxygen, uh, sanitation. If I could, I would add two more. One of them is resilience and green. If you look at all our cities, I mean, we're talking when British Columbia is seeing 48, 50 degrees centigrade. I mean, unheard of. You see what's happening even in the city you quoted, Bombay. The number of days Bombay comes to a stop now every year because of climate change is astonishing. So we need resilience and green. And finally, culture. You know, we don't live, we live, of course, if we are able to live and we live if we are able to feed our stomachs. But there's something beyond that. And culture is not Bolshoi ballet. Culture is street plays and music and uh, Ganesh Chaturthi. And if a city doesn't have culture, it doesn't have soul. So to me, these would be the six metrics that I would put for livability in the Indian context. And if I had to direct the same question to you, Sheila, what would your criteria be to assess the livability of a city? I feel that if we look at the universe and we look at our planet as one, the Urban geography is now the dominant geography. And investments that we make in cities have to anticipate not only past deficits, but also future challenges. Just take the instance of infrastructure. If you know what do poor people need, they need security for the place they live in, they need water, sanitation, electricity, transport, and they need good quality air, good quality food, 
and good quality health systems. They're all connected. Now you have cities, not only in India, but globally, who are not able to make the kind of investments that they need. All of us still have seriously colonial planning instruments by which we say that two-thirds of our city is full of squatters, when in fact the economic order of our global economy has pushed more and more people into cities to earn cash incomes. Uh, we don't feel responsible to ensure that they have a minimum wage. In many informal settlements, you need two or three people to earn what constitutes a minimum wage. And if you look at what happened during the COVID crisis, everybody, including us, realized how many circular migrants there are in our country. When we saw the images of all those people who were walking back because they had lost, they had, they had lost their incomes, they didn't even have money to recharge their phones to tell their family. They couldn't live in the informal settlements where they rented a bed, which is all they could afford. And we began to understand how much they themselves contributed to the rural cash economy. And I would love some economists to actually calculate how much money these circular migrants and the urban poor contribute to their rural kinship group. I believe it's no different from what the diaspora does with the hard currency that comes to India, which the World Bank says is more than the foreign direct investment, which we all want to seduce, like you said, for attracting more and more investment. So there is something seriously wrong in what we are calculating, what we are saying is the mainstay of our national economy, and we're not acknowledging how much the poor are contributing to survival. And so for me, the real transformation in cities that we are looking for is that while it is a utopia to think everybody will be equal all the time everywhere, increasingly human rights, social justice is saying that at least there should be a minimum safety net for all which this COVID crisis has shown does not exist at all, both locally, globally, urban, rural. But in urban areas, it is very visible and has powerfully shown what is missing. So I don't know whether that answers your question, but for me, if you go back to your question of livability, what that tells me is that if cities are safe for women and children, if cities serve the health, education, safety, and potential nurturance for growth for young people, then it's a good city. So I don't want to go for the best. I want to go for the good. So how do we assess and recognize what's good in a city? Every city must be built from the perspective of its own citizens and its own needs. You have to start by asking them, what matters to you? What do you value? But we also need to think about whom we are directing the questions to. Is it the elite in the city or is it the people living in slums? Given the state of our cities today, clearly we are not doing things right. So Irina, I'd like to ask you, at what stage of the planning process do you think we are getting this wrong? 
I think there are two different things uh, embedded in your question. One is of uh, what I call elite capture. And the other one is the complexity of running running organization or a system as complex as an urban city. Let me talk about both of them briefly. You know, we were doing some work uh, as part of a nonprofit in Bangalore once at ward level budget planning. And it was a fascinating discussion because there was a ton of work done, ward level planning. And finally, when we went to the councillor, he looked at the person who was presenting and said, very good thoughts, show me where in the municipal norms is it said that I must listen to you. So the whole plan got dissed, but that was not the interesting part of the story. The interesting part of the story was we were meeting in Jainagar once, which is a Tony neighborhood of uh, Bangalore. And somebody decided that it had to be a representative bunch of citizens. And so we invited all classes of people, all sections of society into somebody's home. And what was astonishing, if you were an observer in the room, was to see how people behaved and more importantly, what was on top of their minds. And so the people who came from the slums or who, who were from a lower class <laughs> sat on the ground in the room. And the person you know, who was leading the effort and came from a different class sat on top of the sofa. And while the people sitting on the sofa, and I'm using it not in a pejorative way, but just as a uh, way to make it come alive for you, talked about green and talked about cycling paths and talked about better roads, the people sitting on the ground talked about electricity. They talked about safety in the night. They talked about drainage. And so to me, what you see depends on where you stand. And I think one piece that's missing in our, in our whole discourse is understanding multiple constructs that live simultaneously and adjacent to each other in cities if you want to be successful. I think we just need to bring that mindset that we need to serve many Indias and they all are legitimate. One is not better than the others. That's one point. The, I think the other point is think of the construct of a city, Arun. I mean, if you and I had to run it, it would be so difficult because you have to Think through what a city needs from a long-term point of view. You have to prioritize. Should I build a road? Should I build an airport? Should I build a power plant? What do I do? Because you have only this much of money. You have to then design it. You have to then resource it. Because none of our cities, maybe with the exception of Bombay, are self-sufficient. Even Bombay is not, given the amount of investment it needs. After we resource it, and resourcing means property tax, collecting for water, collecting for power, raising debt, getting a rating, maintaining books of account, which most of our cities don't know how to do. You've got to resource it. You've got to build it. You have to deliver it. And then you have to manage it, the politics of it and the society of it. Think of these tasks, thinking, prioritizing, designing, resourcing, building, delivering, aligning and managing politics and social equity. A lot of our conversations are about what needs to happen. We don't have enough conversations on who will do it. And how will that poor guy get it done? And that is the piece that I think, that's the infrastructure, invisible but critical infrastructure that I think our cities need. You brought up an important point here, Reena, about how dialogue and conversations during the process of planning of a city are also a part of its infrastructure and are necessary to supplying what the city needs. I'd like to stay with this idea a little longer. If we were to look at systems and constructs of a well-functioning city, what, according to you, would be fundamental to the process of making a city happen? Well, I think the process of making a city happen starts with two or three fundamental constructs. One is, Steve Jobs would be pleased with this statement of mine, that citizens don't know what they want. 
I spent a day once uh, with the original city planner of Singapore, uh, who had joined Lee Kuan Yew in 69 and was the city planner till 2008, 2009, after which he became an advisor. And he was talking about the early days of how they reimagined Singapore. And he had such a fascinating story saying when they were building their public housing, they had a very interesting set of planners. The planners had urban planners, engineers, historians, sociologists, psychologists, religious people. So they represented all facets of your life and my life. But they had two choices in the way they were designing those big homes that you see in Singapore. Right? You could have all the doors opening onto the corridor or you could have them step up and step down. So it created a sense of privacy. And one of the things that they did was they would test everything. And he said every time they tested alternate options, and you know how Singapore tests, it puts it out in retail spaces and citizens come and then send, you know, literally write their comments. And he said every time we took any design choice or any infrastructure prioritization choice to the city, we would get 50-50 because people don't know, right? So point number one is a voice is different from a vote. It's about aligning people. It's not necessarily about outsourcing the decision to somebody. So somebody has to think, and that person has to be thoughtful enough to represent all Indias. The second piece, I think, in the process of uh, running a city is to prioritize. And I think the heart of prioritization is two things. The economic plan for a city. What kind of talent, what kind of jobs, what kind of a quality of life do you want to deliver? Versus the spatial plan for a city. Is this a series of cities where nobody will travel more than 10 minutes from home to work? Or is it a longitudinal city? Or is it a vertical city? And those are very, very different choices. So the point that I'm making is that what you decide to do in a city depends on the kind of people you're attracting, both in terms of look, internal guys who you're retaining, migrants, international or local. You look at some of the cities, beautiful city like Calcutta, it's been hollowed out. Because you have out-migration. And a lot of it is because you don't have an economic proposition for your young people or for your entrepreneurs. And then the last piece is resourcing. Resourcing in terms of funds, but also in terms of capacity, both to build, but also to deliver. At this point, we'll take a small break and we'll hear more from our guests on the other side. Ever wondered what a day in the life of a ward worker at a government hospital might look like during a pandemic? What about a day in the life of a trans rights activist who fights daily against the prejudice faced by trans, hijra and intersex communities in Goa? Or a day in the life of a relief worker from the missing tribe based in Majuli, Assam, the world's largest river island? Through IDR's feature series called A Day in the Life of... We share the stories of everyday people across the length and breadth of the country, doing everything from teaching children with disabilities to volunteering at the farmers' protests. With this series, get a glimpse into what it might feel like to walk a day in the shoes of people who lead very different lives from yours. You can check out A Day in the Life Off on www.idronline.org. And now, back to On the Contrary. Shifting gears a little bit, Sheila, you work extensively with people who the city likes to forget or invisibilize migrants, informal workers, 
people living in slum communities without proper water and sanitation and without convenient access to public services in general. What challenges have you faced, if any, when trying to get these people's voices heard in policy dialogue? I was invited by Mary Robinson to come on a task force she had set up on behest of Ban Ki-moon, who was the Secretary General, to say that in the climate change intergovernmental agreements, there was a section, which is the third element, which was called social justice, to say that you cannot think about climate change without social justice. And she invited me to be part of this group in which I was the only grassroots activist. There were others who were uh, professors. There was a very well-known scientist who is German and who was advising the chancellor and all these people. And yet I know that the role I played there was to say that you must talk about cities because the world is turning urban. And what I realize is that in all these conversations, in development investment, in the SDG goals, in the climate change space, although cities are the geography on which more people live today, there is very little discussion about cities in general on climate change and development investment. Because it's assumed that all that will be taken care of by the private sector. And so from there, I've gotten more and more involved. And I realize that for all of us who work on the ground and also for all of us in general, the climate space is not a separate space. It's a lens. It's a lens with which you look at whatever you are doing. And suddenly, that lens transforms the choices that you have to make. So I think that uh, there is a need for a huge transformation in all our collective thinking. And for all of us, whether you're in finance, you're in business, or we as activists, we need to reconcile to the reality that we are sharing space in this city, in this planet. We have to start talking to each other. And I have learned to talk to business and to municipalities, not because I think that is so smart and strategic. I was forced by community women who were facing evictions to say, we have no way to go back to the villages if they demolish our homes. You go and talk to the municipality. You go and talk to whoever it is, to the collector, to the government, and find and negotiate for an alternative where we can coexist. So there's a lot of appetite for negotiations, dialogue. We need leadership to have the guts and the courage, both in private, public life, to listen to what others are saying. Because there are many things that we can you know, expand, improve, and be, make them viable. You don't have to do magical things. You just have to make sure that those dialogues happen long before the destruction happens. So, for our cities to function well for all citizens, our governance structure needs to work, and dialogue at the local level needs to happen. This also means that the responsibility lies equally with the people. Sheila, according to you, what's the role that communities must play here 
So what we are doing is we're saying, uh, uh, we're, we're basically saying that people also have to change. You can't change other people and not change yourself. The collective nature by which we deal with crisis came up very strongly during this COVID period in terms of support, in terms of assistance. But it's always only in that emergency. So when we found that there were thousands of households all over India who didn't have food to eat because they didn't get wages, there was amazing generosity in the city. And we got so many phone calls to say, find out. And what we realized is wherever communities were organized, they told us how many families were there and we gave them the food they gave it. Wherever the do-gooders who were better off went with food, there was a riot because the food was picked up by the strongest for themselves. So we're saying that have organized communities and invoke the responsibilities of your local politicians to work with you. So if communities are able to identify what they need and they make that representation, and together they go to the municipality and the municipality empowers its local ward officials to take this forward, which is, as you know, in the media that's happening in Mumbai in a very big way, the local machinery begins to work. When the local machinery begins to work, it allows those who are above that to look at the next level. You know, can you imagine the crisis of a commissioner who gets a phone call saying, my drain is clogged, I can't get vaccination. If he or she looks at that, then where's they going to look at the city level problems? So what I'm saying is we've got to create a hierarchy of what are the problems that have to be solved at which level and they have to be monitored. So what we are doing is we're, we're not only identifying issues, but community monitors them with the local officials and the local elected representatives. So you have a hierarchy of decision making and cities have skill sets, capacities, systems. We just need to empower them to start with. Then the more structural, detailed challenges will come up. But first, let's take care of the emergencies. But while you take care of the emergencies, you produce long-term legacies of engagement, of dialogue, of discourse, because emergencies provide us the breakthrough of status quo. Irina, do you think that COVID-19 has perhaps given us the opportunity to take a step back and really think about what and who makes our cities work? Do you think there's been a shift in the last few months towards recognizing a different approach to our cities and the people in them? I don't know, because I, I think we are still in the middle of the storm, right? So it has underscored again how we are slowly but surely killing our most majestic cities. And some of our cities are, you know, hundreds of years old. So I'm hoping that it has reiterated. But I think there are two or three things that give me hope. One is the next generation. I think the next generation is more political than our generation was. And unless every citizen in India is political, we are not going to be able to change what the politicians set as the agenda. So that's point number one. Point number two is, I often think of cities as communities. And we as Indians have outsourced management of our communities to great bureaucrats and 
sometimes great and sometimes lazy politicians. And I think what the pandemic has taught us is the community matters and the community makes a difference. So the third thing that, that this is still a dream, I haven't seen evidence of this is, I would love to see people joining politics at all levels, city, panchayat. And by the way, I see this in villages, right? At the village level, at the block level, at the city level, eventually at the state and at the center level, who come from a representative set of Indian citizens and not just from one segment. And for that to happen, for normal non-politicians to overcome the dislike you have for entering into dirty politics, to overcome the 40 crores cost of buying or winning a seat requires anger. My biggest hope is that the anger sustains and anything we do then will come out of, I mean, anger is finally hurt, hiding, masquerading as as a negative factor. So I hope this hurt and anger sustains and that we don't forget. We must not forget. From today's conversation, Sheila and Arena, what truly stands out for me is the importance of a good governance structure in a city that allows for people's active participation and locally devised solutions. And even if the problem is a globally complex one, such as climate change, solutions will have to be local and will have to be implemented through a well-functioning democratic governance infrastructure. And that truly is the magic of cities. They are shaped by their people, their voices, their needs and their struggles. What we need in order to build resilient cities of the future is to give their citizens space to create what this future looks like and empower them to action this change. Thank you both for being a part of this very important discussion today. On the Contrary is produced by Rachita Vora, Smarinita Shetty and me, Shreya Adhikari. This episode was hosted by Arun Myra for IDR. Production by Made in India. IDR is an online journal that publishes cutting-edge ideas, lessons and insights, written by and for the people working on some of India's toughest problems. You can check us out at idronline.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter or LinkedIn. If you like our show, please do subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts from, so more people can find out about us. You can also email us on write to us at idronline.org. Thank you for listening and see you next week.